And there's lots of young disabled people now working in the industry. The problem is, is I see them push themselves too hard. Each one of them I can see will break one day. And when they break, they're not going to find that anyone goes, oh, don't worry, you can work from home, or oh, don't worry, we'll get that sorted. Or when you will come back, your contract will end, you will be dropped, goodbye. From Soho Media Club, this is Naked Stories, a series taking you into the inner world of the media industry, where prejudice and glass ceilings are laid bare. Stories that are hard to tell out in the open, but have the power to change the future. Produced by PRL Studio, I'm Roses Okipo. Welcome to Episode 6, Rupert Bear. They laugh at me because I'm different. I laugh at them because they're all the same. Kurt Cobain. Diversity and inclusion are two important cultural topics which have an ebb and flow of focus in the workplace. Recently, it's been gaining attention again and also prompted action in the film and TV industry. Yet, it somehow feels that disability is almost always overlooked in this conversation. How can we ensure that disability is not at the bottom of the diversity agenda? As our guest today states, disability is not a new thing, and I was keen to understand more. Let's meet Hawthorne, a broadcaster, actor and journalist who is frighteningly optimistic and has no qualms about calling a spade a spade. Oh, and he is a self-proclaimed punk. Warning, punk may cause creativity and individuality. I was born with cancer. And I'm very lucky. Uh, The cancer I was born with is very rare. And up until me was quite difficult to treat. But I was put on an experimental drug, which, hooray, worked. But it left me with a paralysed right leg. And unbeknownst to everyone, because it was a new treatment, it left me with deformities in my bone structure. And so as I grew, I was a very short kid. And then I shot up over one summer from being short to being nearly six foot. And my spine collapsed. So I genuinely woke up one morning and went, my legs really hurt and my back hurts. Got out of bed, fell down. My mum thought I was trying to get out of going to school because I had an exam. So she got a taxi and sent me to school. And I collapsed at the feet of my geography teacher, who I can still see. I can still remember laying on the floor and looking up. And he he was one of them typical, he had patches on his elbows and a, a corduroy brown jacket. And he went... Oh, that don't look boy. That don't look a boy, does it? Um, oh, uh, what do I do? Hawthorne tells me about his experience as a young child with a life-threatening disability. As a white working-class kid from a crappy town outside of London that was like, you know, our future was just shit and shit and that was it. You know, live, breathe, die and work in a factory. I'm a proper working-class boy and I grew up in a school where my headmaster basically did a, an assembly and said... You're all scum, <laughs> don't dream. You're all going to work in the local car plant uh, making cars. And some of you might work in the offices and some of you might work on the track, but that's it. That's all you'll ever do. Stupidly, he walked on to Ian Jury's What a Waste because he thought, because that's got it lists um, sort of jobs that he could have done. And then he goes, you know, and I'm singing a band. And I remember sitting there, I was bored out of my head. Me and my mates were all having a race to see who could do the fastest mixing about with your thumbs, kind of thumb, we used to call it thumb twirling. I don't know why we did it. It was a way of passing the time. He came on and I thought, you know, what a waste to do. do, do. I could be a thing. And I was thinking, oh, Ian Jury is disabled. I'm disabled. Ian Jury is a pop star. I'll be a pop star. Uh, <laughs> so he came on to tell us all to not dream and basically he gave me my dream. So, people, hashtag representation matters, does matter. The representation of minority groups has a powerful educational impact on young children. Growing up in a summer's haze, nostalgic memories of playing in the street and buying penny sweets. These were the days of innocence, popping in and out of friends' houses. This was also the first time he realised he was different. It took me quite a long time to learn to walk, because I could walk up until I was 15, but it took me a long time to learn how to do it properly, because I my cancer left me with a caliper on my right leg, so I limped, and I wasn't very good at running and walking and PE and stuff. And I remember that my mum and dad filled, you know those little sort of trolley things that used to be filled with 
bricks that had letters on them and you could spell like, alphabet oh, yeah. bricks. Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm so much older than you. So this, this is back <laughs> when wooden toys were all the rage. And it basically was just like a little box with wheels on. And my mum and dad filled it with bricks so I could use it as a walking frame. And I used that to walk about with my friends because we lived in a cul-de-sac so we all sort of got together and played and I remember sort of thinking why don't all my friends have one but I think the time that I really felt different was one of my friends who lived three doors down his mum wouldn't let me into the house because I wore this caliper that meant I couldn't take my shoes off and she had white carpets so everyone that went in had to take their shoes off so I wasn't allowed in because I couldn't take my shoes off. Hawthorne's mum wasn't having any of it. Not only did she make lemonade out of lemons, but I have a feeling his mum would be the kind of woman to spike it with vodka too. So what my mum did instead was basically run a crash where every single kid for about a mile radius would come to our house to play. So I had loads of mates, but I remember the day that this mum said, sorry, you can't come in because you can't take your shoes off. And I was like, oh, I can't, she's right. In my opinion... His mum was a badass who created and perpetuated a positive narrative for Hawthorne. This helped him overcome the doubts that so freely come to those who are seen as different by society. I was also taught that if you can't do it the way everyone else does it, then do it some do it another way. I know very much that I owe an awful lot to my mum who never lots of things really she never made me feel different she never made me feel less in fact if anything I was brought up to believe that I was superhuman none of this Paralympic superhuman I mean proper superhuman you know I had a cancer I was born with a cancer that at that time killed just about everybody and it didn't kill me and rather than say well wasn't that amazing you had lots of wonderful medical treatment that no one else had basically I was told that it was because I was indestructible So I was raised to believe that I was so special that I could beat anything, including cancer. But I generally just got raised to believe that I was no different to anyone else. And if I was really honest, that I was probably superior to most other people. So if they took the mickey out of me or something, it was because they felt they could see how inferior they were in reality. And everyone doesn't like being made to feel inferior. So that's why they picked on me. Hawthorne dodges serious questions with jokes. Come on, Hawthorne, let's get serious. It instilled a complete and utter disrespect for all authority that has run with me throughout my entire life. A reoccurring theme across our podcast interviews has been the dreaded PE lessons. Whether at private school or in a local comp, Hawthorne scene is no exception. Let's talk about the cross-country race. I was always the only disabled kid at all my schools and what would happen there was was that they would kind of try to treat me the same but kind of treat me differently. And I remember taking part in a cross-country run, a class cross-country run once a week for some unknown reason. And I was always allowed to sit it out and then I always wanted to be part of the gang. So I said, oh, can I take part? It all started and I hobbled off. And within about five minutes, they'd all disappeared, they'd gone. And I, and I carried on. And I won't deny it, I cheated and cut about two miles out because I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm never going to get home at this rate. But I eventually got back to the changing rooms and everyone had not only got there, they'd got there, got changed, showered and gone home. I was the only child in this sports thing getting changed. The next morning, they were handing out awards. This makes it sound like I went to a really posh school, but I didn't. But they were handing out awards. And one of my best mates always won because he became champion runner and all that kind of thing that sporty people do. So he came first and then someone else got a book and someone else got whatever. And then they went, and now a special award for for taking part. And I wasn't, everyone sat on the floor, but I couldn't do that. So I sat on a little stool. So I was always above everyone, which meant that everyone in the entire school could see me. So the whole school turned around and went, bravo. And I thought, I'm getting praise for being so shit. But I came in so last that it was almost another day. You know, the, the, the caretaker was there with a the key going, come on, man. I know, you were probably expecting Hawthorne to miraculously win or at least get carried to the finish line like in the movies. But he was really, really shit at sports. That didn't deter him though because he realised that being different can have his advantages. Then I realised that actually being different can actually be a benefit because people are so amazed that you had a go that you get rewards even if you're really shit. And it's true, you go through life and people go, oh, well, at least you gave it a go. And I went to sixth form, which was shortly after I became a wheelchair user. And my mum went, look, it doesn't matter if you get any exams, just go to meet, go to meet friends. You might meet a girlfriend, right? That was basically, I went to sixth form to meet girls. Uh, And I left and I failed miserably because I really didn't bother paying 
paying any attention at all. And no one complained. It was like, well, you had a good time, didn't you? And all of my friends also failed because they also had a really good time. And they all got in so much trouble for, oh, you won't go to university now. And it was like, I couldn't go to university. I couldn't find one that would take me. So it was it was really weird. And it meant that, that being treated differently, I ended up sort of turning to my own advantage and kind of thinking, well, if I'm going to fail, I might as well fail at something I enjoy. And then if I do fail, no one ever really tells you off. So it kind of worked out quite well. It's not to say that Hawthorne didn't escape bullying. Of course the kids bullied him. He was different after all. But Hawthorne had been taught to stand up for himself and turn negatives into positives. Plus, the use of physical violence helped a little bit. This is how he met his best friend. I mean, the thing is, you can't not feel different and you can't help not feeling less because society tells you you're less. That's what, you know, back, especially when I was young, disabled men, less abled. Especially because at school, the kids that are cool are the ones that can do sport. And I was bloody god-awful at sport. Um, <laughs> and so you kind of grow up knowing that you're not perfect. But like I said, I, I would go to school and be in an environment where you kind of, you're the different one, you're the limpy kid, you're the kid that the kids try to bully. But then I'd go home and be told how wonderful and amazing I was. And then that would mean that when I went back to school and the kids tried to bully me, I felt, one, they couldn't win. I mean, I've always been really let down by the quality of bullying. It's always kind of, no, 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 you can't walk. It was like, yeah, what? Come on, think of something better. Um, but also I discovered that bullies don't like being kicked. And I had a metal leg, so I just used to kick him. In fact, that's how I made my best friends. He was my horrible bully in junior school. And then one day I just found myself alone with him and I kicked him in the bollocks with my metal leg. And he dropped and I genuinely thought I'd killed him because he just sobbed and wouldn't move and it was you know that thing when you hit someone and then they don't get up and they don't get up I was like oh. and he got up and then he went I don't ever want you to do that to me again will you be my friend and I thought nice it wasn't sticks and stones that broke his bones and the name calling was pretty weak but bullying soon moved to the bottom of the list of his worries and then when I was 15 on the way to my German O level my spine collapsed <laughs> So I was rushed to hospital and I never walked again. So I came out of hospital when I was 16, a full-time wheelchair user, and basically I thought I wasn't ever going to work. The year that I became a wheelchair user, Mad Max 2 came out. And Mad Max 2, he wears exactly what I had on his leg. And I was like, oh, you bastard. I spent my whole life waiting for this to be sexy. And now here is a major sex symbol. I know a trailer that'll pull that rig. The devastating turn of events had altered Hawthorne's life forever. What does a 16-year-old do when his mortality is knocking at his door? Weirdly, because they told me in hospital I was going to die, and they went, oh, I'm so sorry, you've got cancer again, there's nothing we can do. And so I had 24 hours where I thought I was dying. And then they came in and went, oh, no, we made a mistake, sorry, it's all right, you're not going to die. And in that time, I'd listed all the things I'd not done. They mainly revolved around dyeing your hair, going to nightclubs and having sex with women. So when I when they told me that, I thought, well, I don't have, I now know what it's like to die and not to have done the stuff I want to do. Next time they tell me I'm dying, I want to be able to look back on a list of things I have done. While I was still very, very ill when I came out of hospital, it took about two years to get well enough to start thinking about life. About a year later, I went back to sixth form, um, where my mum allowed me to go to meet girls. Of course, Hawthorne saw death as a challenge to get shit done. There was a new fire in his belly. He wanted to start a revolution, even if it started with a toilet mirror. That was where I did my first bit of campaigning in that they didn't have a mirror in the accessible toilet in my sixth form college. Because I was a new romantic, I wore a lot of makeup and I needed to put it on before first class. So I campaigned to get a mirror put in the, the accessible or disabled toilet. And the caretaker got very upset about this. So he put the mirror directly opposite the toilet. So that when you went to the loo, you had to watch yourself go to the loo, cheeky sod. Life in a wheelchair brought about new challenges. But when I asked Hawthorne what were some of the unexpected things he had to get used to, it wasn't the answer I expected. And I remember someone coming up to me, I was about 18, and they came up and they messed my hair up because people tend to touch your hair when you're in a wheelchair. You're at a funny height, but I also think it's about dominance. For my, myself, it tends to be men that come up and do it. And obviously, I spend time on my hair. It's always been my crown and glory. I so. <laughs> and so I think they come up and they think they, they mess it up and touch it. 
to sort of go, I am above you, you are subservient to me, and it's all this kind of macho bollocks. <laughs> Which is why we're so much hairspray, because it had to be made unruinable by people that come, all right, mate, you know. I mean, people come up, they lean on your wheelchair, they lean on you, they treat you as a coat rack. <laughs> but I know that it's something that lots of disabled people complain about, that, that if, you know, wheelchair users especially, that people come up and touch you and lean on your chair and move you and stuff like that. As well as the physical intrusion, the interrogation gets draining. People say the weirdest things to you when you are disabled. And I think that outside of work, people ask you questions that are really invasive. When you're in work, people ask you those questions because they're trying to see if they can actually make an item about it. So what happens is, well, I mean, for example, the, the documentary about disability and sex really came out of, you know, there I am working on a show called and someone said, well, can you do it? So you get asked these questions and they're kind of, I think people just are a little bit nervous. They kind of don't know what to say. So they say the wrong thing. And it's always been part of my life. So I kind of, I know lots of younger disabled people just, it really gets on their wick. But I suppose, again, I've, I've kind of always felt that I'm educating them. So I've always gone into detail and tried to explain what, the, what happens and what doesn't happen and all this kind of stuff. And... That may then lead people in the media to go, ooh, that's interesting, maybe we can make a show about it. And so lots of my early programmes would kind of, would stem, or items would stem from a discussion where I would be asked a question, which I would then be honest about, and they'd go, ooh, that'll make a great item, and the next thing you know, you're filming something about something. Sixth form, past experiences, and his current reality gave him the inspiration to train as a social worker. I was planning to go and work in hospitals, working with newly disabled people, because one of the things I noticed was when I was laying there in hospital, a 15-year-old being told, you'll never do all this stuff again, all the people that came to talk to me about that were all not disabled. They were all useless, and one of them dressed like Rupert Bear. I have the feeling that this particular bear was a bear that Hawthorne had bared a grudge with. Pardon the pun. I think he was doing it to try and form a bond with the kids. I mean, really like Rupert Bear. He had the Rupert Bear trousers, a mustard jumper and a Rupert Bear scarf that matched his trousers. With a great big afro thing. It's a white bloke, great big afro. Weirdest thing you've ever seen, right? So he looked a bit like a kind of cartoon drawing of what you'd make someone that was a Rupert Bear fan. He was the weirdest bloke. And he kind of kept saying the weirdest kind of obvious thing. I guess you're really upset. Yeah, right. Are you angry? Yeah, I'm angry with people like you coming and giving me shit advice. Fuck off. Anyway, so I thought if I, it'd be much better if I wheeled in and said, hey, you can do stuff like I do stuff. Yeah. And so that was going great. And then Margaret Thatcher cut all the social workers in hospitals. So... After many jobs, including jobs in the government, Hawthorne decided to stick with music and really focus on that as a career. I was doing a gig in a club in Luton and I used to use a computer on stage. And this is computer, music computers back then were very basic. 512K, so half a megabyte to do everything. And I was just about to start a song and I went click and it went bang. And a fuse blew. So I opened it up, started fixing it and talked to the mic telling jokes thinking, because Luton's not the place where you want to watch a disabled bloke fix a computer on stage. They want to be dancing to get down on it and to asking girls if they'd like to come back to their house you know, or at least have sex in the back of their Capri. And I did it and I did a couple of songs, went off and everyone went, yeah, that was really great. And one of the people in the audience was a producer from Thames TV on a stag night. And he came up and said, that was bloody amazing. How you managed to keep the audience entertained while you basically fixed a box. I mean, it's just a big black box. Would you like to come for a screen test? So I said, yeah. Engineering his own serendipity, quite literally, off he went to a studio in the basement of Thames Valley TV on Tottenham Court Road, and he got the gig. And this was his way into presenting. So then what I did was I'd watch telly, and whenever anyone said, oh, next week, we'll be doing something about what it's like to be disabled. I'd, Hello, uh, is someone disabled going to present that on the straight away? And normally they'd go, oh, no, we didn't think of that. And I'd say, well, I'm a disabled TV presenter, just finished working for Thames. You might want me to do your show. And so they'd kind of go, oh, yeah, great. And that kind of was how I started my career, was just being a fluke that then made me really pushy. At a time when lots of the industry was going through one of its diversity spasms, and I just happened to be really lucky and really gobby and look unlike 
what they expected someone disabled to look like. And so I would wheel into a room and they'd kind of go, ooh, he challenges all of our stereotypes and he's quite good. Brilliant, let's give him a gig. And so I got into the youth shock. That's what it's all about, right? Kind of television. So my, I, I already had a obvious uh, kind of Luton accent, but that was ramped up a bit so suddenly I'll be like yeah right I'm here and it's really great nightclubbing when you're disabled is really difficult and I basically ended up going all around the country doing show news items for their local news about nightclubbing when you were disabled so I I, <laughs> I spent about a year and a half just clubbing my ass off for money it was great Hawthorne was in his element doing a variety of TV shows he even landed an opportunity to present a Channel 4 shock sex show which openly talked about sex and disability you got to love the people at Channel 4. What happens a lot now is, is people say, oh, yeah, sex and disability, it's a taboo subject. And, yeah, it was just as taboo back then, but it was all taboo. And what's kind of happened that's weird is everybody else now is just talking about it and they're doing, you know, naked dating shows and getting their bits out and willy-nilly and going into pods and boffing and then describing what they've just done. But disabled people still don't tend to be thought of like that. So, if anything, it's probably weirder to talk about it now than it was back then because everyone was a bit... <gasps> I thought it was really important because I think I felt that one of the things I really felt when I became a wheelchair user and even before when I was like a walking disabled person was that I was never going to find a partner because you're kind of told whatever else you are, you're not sexy. And so that was one of the things I did it for was when they said, do you want to do sex? Talk? I was like, yeah, great, because I think it's really important to have a disabled person talking about sex in a positive way. Having just done a show about vibrators... Naturally, the producers then asked him to present a kids' show. It kind of taught me that, especially back then, they don't really know what to do with you. So there you have this perfect person to present things, say, like Top of the Pops or something. And instead they went, oh, we've got this disabled kids' show. That'll do, he's disabled. And so uh, it won awards, it won an Emmy, got BAFTA nominated. But it was still a weird choice. And it meant that my path got sort of sidelined. And I think that that experience of of realising that the industry would like to be diverse but has no bloody idea what to do with you because they just because no one's making the telly that is disabled or making the output so they just kind of see a hole and stick a cripple in it they don't see a hole and stick the right cripple in it If people in the media industry didn't know what to do with disabled professionals it got me wondering if they knew how to treat people with disabilities the crew will be there and they go so what we're going to do you get up there we'll bring the chair up and then you get in the chair and you will and then do something and I remember doing a film <laughs> this is when I was an actor darling and what they wanted me to do was wheel out of a room onto a flight of stairs and then jump down the stairs and land land sitting on the stair at the end of the at the bottom of this run of stairs and deliver my line and I did that about 20 times trying to get the thing right and when you're at the start of your career you do stuff because people tell you to do things and you kind of want to please because, you know, you're young and you're trying to impress. And then eventually you start really hurting yourself and you realise that the, in the people in the industry don't care. They're not going to go, oh, I'm really sorry we hurt you. We will be really good to you in future. What they tend to do is run like hell and go, nothing to do with us. And I had, uh, I mean, it happens so often. Hawthorne talks about some of the barriers he comes against. The barriers that we face can be massive attitudinal not you know I mean I had producer once say to me I'm not having any effing cripples on my show to my face I went for an audition for a major primetime program and this series exec just I wheeled in and we did our chat and I did my semi-audition thing and he went it's great but I'm not having any effing cripples on my show like that to be honest, I was quite pleased because I'd got so used to people saying, yeah, great, brilliant, ring you, super, and then hear nothing. But actually having someone just go, no, piss off, was great. When I left, I ruminated on it. Uh, I had a word with some friends I had that were more senior that were kind of in, in the, the company and were like a bit shocked by it all. Uh, but apparently he was known for being a tosser all round, really. Another story. No one told me that there was an accessible toilet on my floor. So I used to have to go down three floors into the cafeteria and go and use the toilet in the cafeteria, which was really annoying because it was also where all the people in the cafeteria had a fag. So they all would go in there to have a smoke. And then I'd, so I'd be outside, come on, come on. I've got to talk to the prime minister of Thailand or something in a minute. I'm doing it. And I'd be banging on the door. And then suddenly someone would go, oh, sorry, mate. We all wish that we'd said no to doing things with confidence as young adults. Never has this rung more true than with Hawthorne's next experience. 
I was working as a, an outside broadcast journalist on a radio station, and I said, I can do it all, but I can't carry the equipment. I will need someone to come with me to carry the equipment. So on my first day, they turned up with a pregnant woman who was eight months pregnant who also couldn't carry anything, so I had to carry something, and I jumped off a curb, my chair broke, and my spine fractured. But the lack of support from this TV, from this radio company, had caused me to really hurt myself. I did the piece, my wife was listening. I came home, I looked like I was dying because I was in so much pain. Uh, she said, you would never have known, you did it brilliantly. The next day I got sacked because they knew what they'd done. Absolutely disgusting. Hawthorne must have been devastated. Well, at the time, I was too ill to care. But, uh, I mean, afterwards, I was living. I mean, I threatened to sue them. This major broadcaster has a department of people that deal with people that they've screwed over. So that's how often it happens to people, not just disabled people, but everybody. So they had a solicitor come and talk me through about, and we negotiated a, a, a way of coming out the other end that would mean that I wouldn't sue them, but I would have a career. No, I, I went back to be a bastard, but then they were they outdid me. So they actually made my life so difficult that I told them to shove it. And I ended up having one of my many screaming arguments with uh, sort of senior management about this. And, and, and that's happened a couple of times. I then went back. I mean, this is a major broadcaster, so you can't kind of get away from them. Uh, so I went back about 10 years later and had pretty much the same experience. By now, my blood is boiling. 10 years later and nothing has changed. I can feel that Hawthorne has often mulled over this and contemplated the situation. This is the thing, is that in the time that I've been in the industry, equality laws have come in. So when I started, there were no laws. And I got probably treated better when there wasn't a law than when there was. And as the law became more and more easy to understand and more and more embedded, it seemed that less and less was done to facilitate your reasonable adjustment. And that's what a law asks for. So now, and it kind of was the last time I properly worked for a broadcaster because I thought, well, I, I can, I've got the contract, I'm going in, lovely, lovely, but they're not going to modify how they work to suit my needs. It's basically, if you can fit how they do it, brill. And there's lots of young disabled people now working in the industry who are doing that. The problem is, is I see them push themselves too hard and it is a, there will, each one of them I can see will break one day. And when they break, they're not going to find that anyone goes, oh, don't worry, you can work from home or, oh, don't worry, we'll get that sorted. Or when you will come back, your contract will end, you will be dropped, goodbye. And I think it's one of the biggest things that the industry has to understand is that it cannot say, it cannot be like a monolith that will not move that says, we have done it like this forever and you have to just do it the way we do it. And if you can't do it, then you aren't the right person for us. Because then what happens is, again, is you end up with people that work in the industry who mirror the industry and the industry then doesn't mirror the public. So basically, if all the people that are disabled all are like the people that aren't disabled, then all you're doing is repeating the same mistakes over and over again. So for a young disabled person entering the media, is this Groundhog Day for Hawthorne again? And lots of young disabled people will interview me and I sort of sit there and kind of go, why are you doing that? And they're like, oh, well, because that's what I'm expected to do. And I'm like, yeah, but you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be carrying your equipment. You shouldn't be... And they're like, oh, yeah, but that's what I've been asked to do. And it's like, yeah, but you shouldn't be asked to do that anymore. You know, this law has been in for 25 years now. So why? Why has the freaking media industry not changed? The media is one of those industries where everyone wants to get into it. There's loads of people. Why the fees haven't gone up for starting people? Why all the There's all the internships and everyone's starting off on crap money and everyone's doing stuff on podcasts and everyone's putting stuff out. It's it's where everyone wants to work now. So they And it's always been that way, but it's really bad now. So they know that they don't have to bend because if you go, the next person will come in. And the people working in the industry know that too. The, the new disabled people know that if they moan, they'll probably get elbowed and the next one will come. And they also know because of the history. I started moaning, I got dropped. The next generation came along, they got enough experience to know that they didn't have to put up with it. They moaned, they got dropped. The next one came along 
And the next one, and I think we're probably on the fifth generation of new talent that are coming up through the ranks that are being expected to just suck it up. What upsets me is, I mean, you know, I, that thing where my back went was the beginning of three years of absolute hell for me where I had to be completely rebuilt. My career died because I was in so much pain. I was taking morphine, which then meant that a rumour went around that I was a heroin addict because I was a rocky kind of guy. I must be on heroin. And it was like, no, you broke me, you bastards. But I was taking morphine, yes, but not for fun it's really tricky that I, I see them and I think I really don't want you to have to go through this and you shouldn't have to you know so many minorities had to face such crap to get themselves in the media and it's not on that, that everyone is still facing this sort of exclusion and being treated differently it's horrible if it's discrimination and it's discriminatory practice for most other minorities but for us it can actually break us physically not just mentally you know we all suffer that mental continual drip of being treated differently and expected to be better playing on an uneven playing field and if you even do as good a job as everybody else you're still not as good because they've had to consider your needs and it's like oh thanks a bunch trying to understand the community more i had to ask one of the more sensitive questions in the media industry is one type of disability more favourable than another? Yeah, I do think that there is a kind of acceptable face of disability for the media. I think that, and I'm lucky I'm one of them. Uh, I'm a wheelchair user. Uh, I'm also white and I'm a male. And even though I have to put on my London accent, because they always want you to do it, you know, I, I was told by a BBC exec, you could, you could be like a wheelchair using Don Littlewood. Never been so offended in my life. Apparently it was a compliment, but hey, people say funny things. Anyway, and I think that visually impaired people are very acceptable with their news. Wheelchairs, yes. Visually impaired, yes. Where's the deaf presenters? They're on a deaf show, right? Where's all the autistic people? We know about the gender pay gap, but what about the disability pay gap? Brace yourselves. Shit got real when Hawthorne broke it down. Funnily enough, when I started on mainstream television, I kind of got paid, not brilliantly, but it wasn't bad. But as I sort of went into doing more disability stuff, it kind of, it was still better than what I'd get paid if I was working in a factory, but not because you're self-employed. And so you earn, you know, a couple of hundred quid a day. And you're like, whoa. But then you don't work for the rest of the week. So you've actually earned 200 quid a week. And then, you know, you might not work the next week. So then you actually earn 200 quid for two weeks. Um, and that's great. And then you learn what other people are learning. Because then you all start going to the party, darling, and you start mixing with the other non-disabled presenters. And you're at your, you know, kind of drinks due for a certain channel's presenting talent, which is, you know, used to be something that I haven't got a not that doesn't happen quite so much anymore because I think they realise we, we all mix. We might all know what was going on, which used to happen a lot. And you'd find out how much other people were earning and you'd go, that's arse. <laughs> so then you'd go back and um, kind of go, well, can I have a bit more? And one show I did that was really popular, I got paid 100 times less than the producer got as a bonus for each show. So I got paid hundreds and he got paid tens of thousands of pounds as a bonus on top of all the other stuff he did because it was his idea. And I, I, it, when I started to realise that, you know, you are not seen as an equal talent. And, and it's not just me. I mean, um, like I said, my good friend, she was working on a programme and she was doing the same thing, talking over, you know, lunch with all the other actors. She was an actress and she found out that she was getting paid massively less. So she just went in and said, hang on, we're all the same. You know, I'm, I'm important to this storyline too. You know, I'm a regular character. Can I have the same? And, and the producer went, well, you're lucky to have a job at all, aren't you? So... Like many dumped on the diversity conveyor belt, disabled people are made to feel grateful for having a job at all. And when I was in television, there was a thing called a panel. And what it was, was you'd send, you know, all these weird people are sending letters going, dear BBC, I'm disgusted. And if something got eight letters or more, it went to panel. And so every time someone disabled went on television, loads of people, I was eating my dinner, I don't want to see cripples eating my dinner. And so the people in television started to think, well, we're doing something amazing because we're challenging these terrible people and, and we're breaking boundaries. So then they were like, well, aren't we we're doing you a favour? And I think that's, even today, I think that there's an element of which diversity is something they're doing as a favour to the groups who are diverse. I'm curious, how does Hawthorne describe his disability today? I am disabled and I am proud of it. 
I'm not less able, I am made less able. So I am disabled, but I'm not disabled by me, I'm disabled by the world around me. And we're back to that thing of being brought up to think that you're better than everyone else. I don't have a disability, I am disabled. I, I subscribe to what's called the social model. And so what I believe is I have an impairment which can be a medical condition, a difference in how your body works. It can be anything that makes you slightly different from the rest. Um, I am disabled by the way society treats me because of that. So when I get those forms, I say, yes, I am a disabled person. I tell them what my access requirements are, but I don't tell them any more than that. And I don't, that's legally what I have to do. It's a bit like race. It's like, I am black. And then them wanting to know, where are you from originally? It's that kind of question. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, no, I cannot walk. That's it. I don't, I don't need to tell you, you know, I had cancer and then my spine collapsed and then I had it. You know, that's, that's unimportant. That's one of the sad things about disability in the media is that you end up being expected to tell so much more of yourself than you would do. I mean, society does it. Society's always going, what happened to you then, mate? You know, oh, does it still work down there? And all that kind of bollocks. The media does it, and it does it in a way that expects you to just be great with that. If it's important to the story, say, then great. I wonder if there has been progress, or is there still pressure for young disabled talent in the industry? You see it a lot, even with the new, the new young talent that we get in the media, that they kind of end up doing programmes about themselves and about their history. I know I did it. My, my early output and you know my early programmes I appeared on, lots of them I would talk about my own life and my own experience to try and form that bond with the audience. But I kind of think we've gone past that now. I don't think we need to tell the audience all about my medical history. It's not all doom and gloom for you young disabled media professionals. I don't think it's as difficult to imagine for disabled people that are disabled young people now as it used to be. I think that there is a a growing number of people thinking, well, actually, much like all the other media industries and the music industry and the publishing industry, we don't really need the gatekeepers anymore. You can make stuff at home, put it online, and people watch it. And we used to really hate the fact that everyone would go, oh, do you know blah, 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 they're in a wheelchair. Kind of now, we do because the social media has opened up a community. So we now know each other you know, globally. You know, I have contacts all over the world and they have contacts all over the world. And so if someone starts up something who's young and it's really good, it will go international within about six months and they'll become a huge star. Hawthorne highlights, it's not only the early career opportunities that industry needs to focus on, there is a lack of any sort of progression path for the disabled community. What is different is the it, what, it, what hasn't changed is the route in. Is that now it's still all about new talent. It's all about these kind of schemes where you train people up. So it's great if you're young and you're new, but if you're already got a track record, there's nowhere to go. And I think it's why I, I talk so much about remembering the talent you have as well as nurturing the talent you've found. Because, you know, I, I went, you know, I'm far too old now to go back into it, unless, of course, I want the character, um, you know. But there are loads of really amazing young people that I have seen start and blossom and then slowly disappear. And even people that you'd think of as being the major star, like Adi Adepitan is a great example of someone that came along, just, he was in the noise, he was everywhere. And now he's sort of world service travel show, Addy in Africa. It's, it's not, he shouldn't have gone from being on telly all the bloody while to being on telly for children in need and a couple of documentaries. He should be doing going up and sort of Warwick Davis is kind of, he's, his career has kind of carried on going up. But don't forget, he started in 1981 as an Ewok. So it's taken him 10 years longer than my career to get to being on daytime television presenting a game show. So it's sort of, I don't think it's too difficult for younger people to imagine. I just think it's still really difficult for them to think, I'll still be doing this in 40 years. I, I know so many people that started like me thinking, oh, this could be a job I could do forever. And then suddenly at some point in their career, they suddenly find themselves sat on the sofa more than they are sat in front of a camera. You don't get given the chance to be a presenter a more famous presenter, a more famous presenter, a more famous presenter. You don't, that doesn't really happen. You kind of get to a certain point. And I think it's quite sad that I'm seeing lots of the new presenters start doing the things that I did and other people have done where they'll kind of go, oh, I'm going to talk about my own life. Uh, I want to give you an insight into my disability. And then the next thing you know, right now, you've just shot your career in the foot, mate. Um, so I hope that doesn't happen to them. To put it into perspective, 
I think one of the really weird things about when we talk about disabled people in the media, whether it be in the past or now, is you can name them. And I think that's a really bad sign. It's like, and, and to be honest, you can do that for lots of other minority groups as well. You kind of go, oh, there's them and there's them. And they, and, and, and people always go, oh yeah, but there's, there's Alex Brooker. He does that thing. And then there's Sophie. She does, and then there's, you know, and you're like, yeah, and you can name them all. There shouldn't be so few of you. We got chatting about COVID-19. A lot of silver linings have emerged out of the global pandemic. Has an opportunity arisen in the media to press the restart button and become more inclusive of the disabled community? Lots of companies lose talent because life gets in the way. And so they have to, you know, stop working in the office. So they go home and they work or they can't come, they're part-time and all this kind of stuff. And it means that they spend all that time focusing on building up that talent of that person and then they lose it. Whereas if you let them work from home or have a flexible working environment, then you keep it and, and they feel better working for you. So they stay working for you. Then this happened and suddenly someone like me was like, yay. Um, and my community was like, yes, this could be it. This could be when one, people realise that you can be stopped from doing things, not for anything you do, but because society doesn't let you do it. We were all told to stay indoors, whether you were susceptible or not, because it was unsafe. And suddenly that's what it's like to be disabled. You can't come in here, mate, because you can't get in. You're a fire hazard and all this kind of stuff. This stuff you get said to you all the while. Suddenly everyone got it. We thought, brilliant, this might wake up society. Then everyone started working from home. It's like, see? So I was hoping it would be the beginning of a new future. We're all starting to get quite worried because you've got lots of these social distancing policies like cycle lanes and wider pavements and was it low traffic neighbourhoods that are coming in that are proving to be done in a way that's not being considered to be accessible to disabled people. I think that we are at a point where we could really build a new society and I think the media could really be exploring that. It could be exploring what can come out how can we build a new tomorrow that works better for everybody learning from this awful awful thing and for disabled people one of the big things that's happened is we've all been lumped as vulnerable whenever they talk about the deaths they go ah oh, yeah but it's all right because they were all vulnerable and they had pre-existing health conditions as if oh well if cripples die gives a shit and that's basically what's being said today oh well six children have died of covid but it's all right because they all had pre-existing health conditions I'm sure their parents were over the moon. But that is the attitude we're starting to see. And it's getting quite scary for us because it makes us realise that actually how we aren't value. If you imagine just before all this happened, we had a big diversity. Let's get lots of everyone that's not middle class and white on telly. And suddenly, you know, we all thought this might be it for us. Yeah, we might get on again. Um, there was a big push. We've got the Paralympics coming up. Hooray, that got cancelled. I hate the Paralympics, but we won't go into that. Uh, or we will probably... Um, and um, it looked good. And now I think it's it's really scary. And I think that the media itself doesn't realise that, you know, you're reading the news and you're saying these things as just fact without understanding the implication for a whole community to be told, well, it's all right because the only people that have died are you lot. So they say we've got to respect a system, but there isn't a system that respects the disabled. What needs to change the whole industry has to wake up. Diversity isn't something they do to be good. It's something they do to make good stuff. It's the only way that they're going to remain, remain being relevant. It's the only way that they're going to find new stories. You know, the the number of times you see this hackneyed idea of what disability is being repeated in news, drama, you know, documentary. And it's like, if you actually got disabled people to tell their story properly not get a disabled person, get an, a non-disabled crew and front a, non, a documentary by non-disabled people about being who you are, um, you'd have a very different idea about what it was to be disabled. We need to be represented, if for nothing else, because we're the only group you can join. You know, I will not wake up tomorrow and be a woman. It will take a lot of effort and I won't make a very good one. So I know that's not going to happen, but I genuinely woke up one morning and couldn't walk again. And I know lots of people who have the same experience. And to live in a world where they see themselves before that day and see a positive idea about what it is. At the moment, the positive idea is you can be a Paralympian. But not everyone who is non-disabled can be an Olympian. So 
What about if you love music or art or drama? Or what if you love business? You know, what if you love being an accountant? Can you be a disabled accountant? You have no idea, right? So that's what I mean about this whole idea about diversity is it's it's not just getting us on screen. It's getting all of us on screen. And something that people don't realise is that all of the figures around diversity, they apparently while there are 20 plus percent of us in the population, we make up about between three and five percent of airtime. So we are almost invisible. The main perception, and I mean, and I should probably say misconception, is that the public will be offended when they see disabled people. And there are always going to be members of the public that write in and go, dear BBC, and they will be about all minorities. And what's weird is, is that as time has passed, all the other minorities, if you get someone that writes in and goes, dear BBC, I couldn't stand it when I saw that gay couple kiss on television last night. You just go, idiot, tear it up. But for disabled people, they still kind of go, ooh, um, uh, ooh. And I think that's something that really needs to change. But I also think they are afraid that we're going to be difficult, that we might break. And I think that might be because of their track record. Because like I said, I've been broken by media companies. So that's known. That You know, you get a reputation, oh, well, don't you hire him, he'll break. But it's not because I'm breakable, it's because they broke me. Because they didn't do what I asked them to do to make me so that I didn't break. And I think that that really shapes how, how they look to the future. And again, you know, like I said, I think that puts pressure on new talent to be unbreakable. And, and they shouldn't really be in that position. But what they need to do is just start employing more disabled off-screen talent, more producers, more directors, more execs, more people. You know, they need a department. They used to have a bloody department of people that worked out how you support people. They need that back. But it needs to be all disabled people. So that if you need to know how to, you know, support someone who is autistic, we'll go to the autistic expert who will go, this is how you do it. And to me, it seems really obvious, but... <laughs> there is also a societal issue a negative attitude towards disability is one of the potential barriers for disabled people to achieve social equality. What's sad is that doesn't just come from white middle-class people, that comes from everybody. All of our society, whatever group they might come from, they all feel that being disabled means that you're less able. And I think that they forget that not being able to walk or not being able to see or understanding things differently or whatever that makes you disabled doesn't mean you're going to be less able at everything. It just means you walk differently, you see differently, you can't read the way everyone else does or whatever. Why is representation so important? It's important for disabled people to be portrayed in the media for so many reasons. But one of them is, we, as I've said before, we are one of the only groups that you can join in the blink of an eye. So basically, you're not doing it for someone else. You're doing it for yourself on the off chance you get a truer representation of what it means to be disabled, which means that people then stop fearing it so much. So many people are afraid of it happening to them. How often do you hear people go, well, if I ever lost the ability to wipe my own ass, I'd want to die. And it's like, it's not that big a deal, folks. You know, being able to walk, not being able to walk, not being able to eat. Not... It's a mindset thing that we can show that life can be wonderful in a body that isn't perfect. But also, it's... The media is all about stories. And we are a huge untapped wealth of wonderful stories. Some very sad, some wonderfully uplifting, some quite boring. But stories, we've now got um, a wheelchair user that does Gardener's World because some people do gardening. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not a big deal. It's not going on going, and now I'm going to wheel around the garden talking about how these plants are relevant to my impairment. It's just a gardener on wheels, right? And that's the thing is that I, I'm a big believer that we need telly for disabled people. I think that is a huge market that's ignored. And I mean, that. I think that's the same for everybody. I think we need bringing back of kind of telly for the gay community, for the black community, for older people about being old that older people can do stuff you know young telly youth let's bring back youth you know don't just stick it on BBC3 and stick it online let's have youth back and have an hour a week or an hour a day where kids late at night can go here I'm going to watch some crappy grime band that people like me don't understand because it's not for us right and let's stop trying to make telly for everybody because people don't watch telly the way they used to so you can make an hours programme for young people and they'll watch it online or they'll watch it on telly you can make a program for disabled people we can watch it online we do a 360 right back to when hawthorne was a kid you're a kid you're growing up you see other people on screen in online on your magazines on you know every you, 
disabled people are part of the, of the world you grow up in. You think like I did when I had that assembly and think, oh, Ian Jury's a pop star. I'll be a pop star. You can think, oh, he's a TV presenter. She's a TV presenter. I'll work in the media. And I'll bring something to the table. I won't be there trying desperately not to be disabled, which is where I think we're at at the moment. You can be proud of the fact that you are different and that you need to have things done differently because that will bring something new to the table. There will be guaranteed trials and tribulations, but it's up to us to keep challenging the culture and people's perceptions. I think the industry would like to think that it's got a lot better. I think it's gone up and down and up and down and we are on a crest of the moment i i am um, i've seen this cycle that the industry goes through repeated quite a few times i was part of a cycle back in the late 80s early 90s where it was let's get more diversity then i saw the cycle dip again and inclusion was the buzzword now inclusion works if your senior management tells everybody that it's got to be more inclusive but if you don't do that then basically everyone disappears and that was the experience of all the people that i worked with at that time and like i said i've seen it come up and down and up and down and i think that we're on a peak of a desire to increase diversity and representation and it's why i'm doing things like this because I want to remind people that it isn't a continuous growth. It's not getting better every year, that this could all disappear. And let's face it, we're coming out of a, a terrible time, a big crisis. Everyone's trying to think about how to do things. And it might be that the focus that was very much there at the end of 2019 might not be there at the end of 2020 because everyone's had their eye taken off the ball. And I think that everybody from all of all uh, underrepresented groups needs to make sure that they don't let that happen. Don't let the kind of, well, we want to go back to doing things the way they used to be because people like tradition and you know that kind of stuff. That mustn't happen again. This time it's got to be the last time that the dip happens. It, we've got to stay up there and keep, and we can eventually build so it does go continuously straight up. Change. I think if you want to really help a positive change, you, one, stop thinking about people as being different and stop thinking about them as something that you're doing something for because you're being nice. Think about it as you're doing something because you want to make what you do better and they will help. Don't just employ people because they're disabled, right? You, you are allowed to say, well, they're great, but they weren't very good at what they do. They're lovely chat, but they're not, you know, lovely, but they're useless. Um, but also acknowledge that they might not be very good because they haven't had the experience. So they might not be right for that role, but they might be role for a junior role that you can help bring them up. It's our duty to build others up, especially when you know how it feels to be torn down. There is no greater disability in society than the inability to see a person as more. Being disabled is, is is a multifaceted thing, full of just as much joy as sadness. The sadness, as I said, comes from the way you're treated and the way you're made to feel less and different. And that in itself is a story, you know. So don't think about it as difficult. Think about the difficulties could even be another story. It's just a new way of telling stories. And, and that's all we do. So don't view it as difficult. View it as just a way of changing what you do. And you might find that it works for everyone. Being disabled is no doubt being different to others, but our mindset needs to transform to seeing the abilities and not the disabilities these professionals possess. Hawthorne continues to pave a path for his community and for us too, as we may one day find ourselves on a similar journey. He built up his weaknesses until they became his strong points. Punk is musical freedom. Saying, doing and playing what you feel I think that's pretty close to how Hawthorne approaches life. I started with a Kurt Cobain quote, and I only thought it was fitting to finish with one. I'd rather be hated for who I am than loved for who I'm not. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Naked Stories. This show was edited by Michael Kalizinski. Sound designed by Anton Borove. Produced by Anna Zerjic, Jessica Lapsiwala and Tom Biskowski. Narratives written by Jessica Lapsiwala and myself, Rose Okipo. See you in the next episode for more non-filtered stories. For now, ciao bella.